What an amazing time of the year. Good morning. Christmas, where we get to celebrate the birth of the Messiah, God arriving in flesh here on earth. What an incredible time. How many of you have got your Christmas shopping done? Confess right here. Here we go. Good. Several of you. How many of you haven't? You've got a little ways to go. Yes? All right. Very good. How many of you just don't care? No, just go. Don't raise your hand. Don't let your kids see that. Come on. Well, I, uh, somebody forwarded this to me um, this week, and uh, sometimes I like to, to be able to share what people forward. This is something that was really highly important. It said, you know Christmas is almost here when? And then they gave 10 reasons how you know Christmas is almost here, and here's what they said. Number 10, there are more pine needles on the carpet than on your tree. You know Christmas is getting close. Number nine, the credit card is smoked along with the turkey and ham. Ouch, yes. You know Christmas is, is almost here when it's a wonderful life has been shown for the 13th time. How many of you have seen the wonderful life already this year? All right, how many of you plan to? How many of you, no way? All right, good, all right. You know Christmas is close, number seven, when a trip to the mall and back is more challenging than the Indy 500. That's about right, huh? Especially around here. You know Christmas is, is almost here when, number six, the Salvation Army Bell ringers start accepting credit cards. Yeah, watch out. Number five, you're pulling an all-nighter because of the words, some assembly required. Yeah, Right. Number four, your Christmas list is written in black while your checkbook balance is written in red. Uh-oh. Um, how about this? Uh, the infamous fruitcake returns for it from its 12 months of hiding. You know Christmas is getting close. Well, good morning. I am so glad you're here. If you got your Bibles, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be going and also Matthew chapter 1. I want to make sure you're flipping back and forth. If you remember last week, we started the, the series called The Star of Christmas. And what we're doing is we're focusing in on what Christmas is all about. The one person, the true star, the mega star, the superstar, which is Jesus Christ. We know the reason for the season is Jesus. We've heard it. Maybe we've even written in lights around our house. Jesus is the reason. And as we are in a culture in which we are starstruck, we are amazed by celebrities, and we watch and we like to know the inside and the back story of all of our stars what we're doing this year is we're looking at jesus and we're trying to understand who he is the star of christmas so last week we started with the lineage of jesus we looked at why all the names mattered in luke uh, chapter 3 and why the names mattered in matthew chapter 1 and so if you didn't get a chance to look uh, hear that message or maybe you want to go back and review the importance of the lineage um, we do have it on podcast so you can go and listen to it it's free but i want to encourage you the reason we're looking at this is because we're pointing to the Messiah and who he is. And today we're going to be talking about the parents. We need to meet the parents of Jesus, Joseph and Mary. It is interesting that when we start talking about God coming to the earth, how did God choose to come? He could have chose, he could have chose to come in a, a huge rocket, in a, some time capsule like Superman and just landed here on earth. God could have chose to come and just, just explode into being, and boom, and everybody says, ah, look at that explosion, there's God, he happened right there in that moment. But God chose to come as a fetus in the womb of a woman. Isn't that amazing? The God of the universe, the one who has the authority, the power to actually speak, and when he speaks... Worlds are created, the earth is formed, the sun begins to give off its burning gas and its light and its heat. This creator decided to come 
to the earth. And he chose to come as a baby. Now, there are several institutions that have been ordained by God. Most theologians will agree on, on the two, the church and the family. There's also a third one that some don't really want to claim, but it's, it is true that God also instituted government, Romans chapter 13. We don't like to talk about government, especially when <laughs> so many weird things are going on, but that's God ordained, and he, he said these three institutions, government, church, and family are important. And what God does is this. He takes a baby, and he comes in the form of a baby, a child, into the family unit. And the family unit has been the, the greatest institution that God has created. Why do I say that? Because it was the first institution. It was the one he, God created all the way back in the Garden of Eden. He established a mom and a dad to actually nurture and care for, protect, to guide, to teach, to train, to raise up, and also pass on faith from mom and dad from one generation to the next generation. God ordained this. So here we are. We have God, Emmanuel, with us, coming into a family. And today I think it's important for us to look at who Mary and Joseph were. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 1, go all the way down to verse 26, and we're going to find the story here. Here's what the Bible says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we are amazed at who you are. We're amazed that you are a God who loved us enough to actually send your Son to this earth. It blows our mind. It's hard to even comprehend why you would even come to this earth. But God, we are thankful that in this gift of Jesus coming to this earth, we're able to catch a glimpse of your love, your grace, and your mercy. I pray today, as we look into this scripture, God, would you challenge us? Would you teach us? Would you give us the ears to hear so that, Father, we walk away from this place knowing that we've heard from you? In Jesus' precious name I pray, and all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right, so in your bulletins today, I want to draw your attention. We have four lessons we're going to learn from from meeting the parents. Meeting the parents of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Now, you remember in Luke, we have Mary's account. We see a little bit more background about who Mary is. And then over in Matthew, we find out a little bit more about who Joseph is. We start off in verse 26 and Here's what we find. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Now, let's just stop right there. Who's Gabriel? He's an angel. How many angels are actually named by name in the Bible? Can you, can you think of them? There's, there's my, good job, Dr. Murado. Michael Murado, yes. Michael is one. Can you name another one? Gabriel, we just read, good. And there's one more. 
Lucifer, who becomes Satan, right? So there's three angels named in the Bible. These angels actually have high-ranking official authority, all right? And so Gabriel was the one who stands in the presence of God, and as he stands in the presence of God, God sends him out to be a messenger. You'll remember in the Old Testament, Gabriel also is the one who goes to Daniel. You remember in Daniel, he actually goes and he gives Daniel a message and visions and talks to him about and explains to him what Daniel is dreaming. So he's a high-ranking official, and he goes and he's been sent to a town. He's been sent to the town of Nazareth. Now, here's your first point. Here's your first point. It is possible to live godly in an ungodly environment. Here's why this is important. The city of Galilee was not known to be, or the, the region of Galilee was not known to be a religious area. Matter of fact, Nazareth would have been the, um, the area in which the Roman soldiers would have headquarters, some headquarters for the northern area in this city. And so it was not known as a Jewish religious city. Jerusalem would have been the holy city. So if you were going to have the Messiah come and live, you would have actually expected the Messiah to come to the holy city. But he doesn't. He comes to Galilee. Now, we have cities, and, they, and some of our cities begin to get reputations, and then now they have nicknames. Can you help me out? What is Fort Worth called? Cowtown. Good job. What about Chicago? The Windy City. Um, New York. The Big Apple. Good. What about Las Vegas? Y'all didn't even want to say it. You're like, everybody thought it. And you backed up. like, I can't say that in church. <laughs> it's Sin City, all right? So here's what we have. We have Nazareth. And it has a reputation. It has a reputation not being very good. Now, if you remember Nathaniel, when he's being recruited to be a disciple of Jesus, what does he say about Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why? Because Nazareth was not considered a good, righteous, holy city. It was considered a sin city. Now, here's what we have. We have Mary, and as we just read the text, Mary is going to find favor with God. Now, flip over to Matthew chapter 1, would you? Hopefully, you had your finger there so you can move over there pretty quick. We're going to go back and forth between Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 1. And here's what it says about Joseph. Verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a what? A just man, a righteous man, and unwilling. Now, stop right there. They're claimed to be righteous, to be godly in an unrighteous environment. I want to focus on this for just a second because many people say, you know what, if I had a better environment, if I had a better workplace, if I wasn't in public schools, if I wasn't at this place, my environment, if my family wasn't so pagan, then I would actually be able to live a godly life. And I want to encourage you. There are some in this room, what you need to hear today is this, that it is possible to live godly in an ungodly environment. And maybe for the simple fact, God has maybe called you to be the light in that dark place. Don't lose faith and don't lose sight because what God had called Mary and Joseph to do is to live in Nazareth, an ungodly city, and yet to be the light in this place. We're coming up on Christmas where you're going to have family in. And some of you are going, oh, I can't wait for my family to come and go. And you're just ready for them to already leave. You're already thinking about the day they leave and finally I'll be able to relax. 
Can I just encourage you one more time? Some of you might have hard conversations that are going to be coming up, and you're going to have to deal with some stressful situations. What God might be calling you to do is to be godly in an ungodly environment. And Mary and Joseph, their title, what God says to, about them, what the Word of God says about them is that they were righteous, they were just in an unrighteous environment. Next, keep going. Let me, let me give you a little bit more. It says betrothed, and it, it talks about this engagement period. So let's talk about the engagement for just a second, because I, I think we need to understand their engagement is a little bit different than our engagement, all right? So when we get engaged today, um, you actually, the, the lady will get a ring, and there's this engagement period, and then you get married, and you usually plan the wedding, plan several things, but you can actually break off an engagement and not actually be considered divorced, Right? Now, in this day and age, here's how the, the ceremonies would begin to happen. The parents, matter of fact, it wouldn't be just the parents. It would really truly be the fathers would get together of the couples. And they would say, yes, I think my daughter yes, should, um, should be married. And in being married, I think these two, uh, we're going to fill out a contract. We're going to make a contract between the two. So the dads would get together and they would begin working through the dowry, the payment for the daughter. Now, the daughter would somewhere be around the age of 12 or 13. All right, so she's 12, 13. By the age of 15, she's married off. She's gone, she's out of house. All right, so the dad doesn't have to mess with her anymore, and he gets paid for her. That's, a, <laughs> that's not very good, but, you know, hey, that's, that's what happened. All right, so, so he gets paid, so they work out the agreement, and the, the dads say, this is what needs to happen. The, 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 the young man would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30. All right, so I, that just sounds a little crazy, but once they, the, the dads get together, they agree with the, the payment, they agree with the arrangement, and they say, yes, this works for both of our families. Then they come out and they announce the agreement, they announce the, the, the details of the agreement, and say, this is what's going to happen, they are to be married, and now that they announce it, then the families begin to celebrate, and now the couple in, enters into an engagement period. During the engagement period, what would happen is this, the the, the husband, the, the man, he would have to go and begin to make sure that he had a house ready. And the, where he would take his house is he would go back to his mom and dad's house and he would start building on an extra room. How many ladies want to live with their in-laws? <laughs> it's not a good deal, right? And so they would go back to, he would go back to his, his parents' house. He would create a room and build out a room. So the reason the engagements would typically last um, three months to a year would be so that the house would be able to be prepared, the extra room would be added on. Plus, there had to be time for the woman to be ceremonial, go through the rituals of being ceremonially clean. What they would do is they would need at least, especially three months, no, long, no shorter than three months would be used for the engagement period. The reason why is they wanted to make sure that the bloodline was clean, the bloodline was pure. So that way, if she was pregnant, it would be revealed in that three months. All right, so that was extremely important for the lineage and the history to make sure, yes, this is my child. There wouldn't be any accusations being made. So there's this period of, of time. So she goes home. Plus, during this three months to year period of engagement, what would happen is this. The couple would begin to interact together. Many times they did not know each other relationally at all as far as even saying hi or hello so during this engagement period, they would begin to interact, always with a chaperone, and that way they could actually build somewhat of a friendship to say, hey, how are you? It's good to see you. And they would get to know each other a little bit during this relationship period. All right, so this is where we find the couple now. 
during this engagement period, there's probably around three months that has transpired. And now Joseph hears the words. Look what it says. Verse 18. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Time out. Check me out. We don't want any part of this. This is a problem, right? Think about this. The engagement period was to reveal, was to make sure it revealed if she had been, the the woman had been unfaithful. And here's what happens. Joseph finds out that she's been unfaithful. Now, in my line of work, I, um, I get the opportunity. I don't know if it's an opportunity. I get the privilege. I get the, I, 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 I get to come alongside people who are hurting and their marriages are being broken apart by an affair or, and as you walk through this, the pain, the hurt, the betrayal, the abuse of love is so overwhelming. It's gut-wrenching. And here's what happens to Joseph. He is now placed in an embarrassing situation where publicly people are going to begin to find out that his wife has been unfaithful to him. And the typical response would be that he would announce it as it's announced to the city. They take her outside the city, and he throws the first stone, and then everybody else throws stones, and he watches her be executed by being stoned to death. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, one, the pain and the embarrassment? And then on top of that, you add this extreme frustration saying, wait a minute, she, she betrayed me. And you're going, God, I, I showed up. I did the right thing. How would you allow this to happen? I thought, she, I, I thought this was going to work. We had your blessings. I was doing the right thing. And yet, this is what I get. Now watch. And so here's what the Bible says as he's thinking about it. So he's having many sleepless nights. Many sleepless nights, and it says that he's, verse 19, being a just man, he was unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Instead of making a big deal, he says, I'm going to back up, and I'm going to do this quietly. Here's some evidence of his godliness and his righteousness. You ready? When he's being hurt, wronged, abused, instead of retaliating with anger, Instead of retaliating to hurt and to gain pain, what does he retaliate with? Grace. Do you see it? An evidence of your life and an evidence in my life, when you are being hurt, when you are being abused, is instead of retaliating to actually cause the most pain in somebody else's life, is that you retaliate with grace. It's an evidence of God's work in your own heart and life. Now watch. So he says, I'm going to do it quietly, and we're going to move on. So here's what I want to show you. Something else that's interesting about this couple. As you stop and you begin to read their story, and you go back over to Luke chapter 1, you begin to just see how normal and ordinary Mary and Joseph are. Here's your second point. You ready? Your second point is this. Is that God delights in working through normal, ordinary, average people. Mary and Joseph were not the cream of the crop. They were not not royalty in the sense that they had all the money for them. They were just normal people, just average people going through their daily lives. They weren't rich. They were just normal people. 
I took some pictures uh, when we were over in Israel, and I want to show you some of these pictures. One of the pictures is just the city of, of, of Galilee, I mean, of Nazareth there in the Galilee, just overlooking. And it overlooks, and it shows a picture of an olive tree, and you can kind of see some of the, the things around. It's just, it's a, it was a pretty setting, overlooking here on the mountaintop, just kind of overlooking the valleys. Go to the next picture, and it's a couple. It's just this, this shepherd and this young lady. She's a shepherdess. And I took the picture because it reminded me, I'm standing there in Nazareth, and it just reminded me of how normal and ordinary. That Mary and Joseph were not some, so, oh yeah, you wouldn't recognize them saying, yes, I went to school with Joseph, and I believed that Joseph, he was going to be voted on to be the, the most likely to succeed. Did you ever have those in your yearbooks? The most likely to succeed, the most likely to do something, to become famous. Joseph wouldn't have been that. Mary wouldn't have been that. They were just normal ordinary people. Next, let me show you a couple other things. This is just a, a city. It was, it's, it's not as there in Nazareth. It was rebuilt, and it's just rebuilt to give you an illustration to be able to walk through the city. So you see the homes, and then you can kind of see the next picture is, is stair steps going up, and it's just the, the, the city was just put next to house after house after house, and you keep going to the next one, and there's a picture of this lady who's, who's weaving, and she's dy- dyeing wool, and she's just weaving. And I, I enjoyed being in Nazareth because you're going, hey, this is the place that Jesus grew up, and normal. This is where Mary and Joseph is from. And then the next picture is a woodworker, and the woodworker is just working through and using wood tools. I show you these pictures because I want to help us understand that God delights in using ordinary people. Many times we get frustrated and we look around and we say, oh wait, God can never use me because I'm not this. I wasn't born here. I'm not that person. But God delights in using ordinary people. Men, do you ever remember visiting your, uh, your fiancés or maybe your girlfriend's parents for the first time? How nerve-wracking it is to meet them for the first time. So I... I uh, I remember my first time to meet Jamie's parents, my wife's parents. Now, she didn't tell me her dad was big, all right? I'm 6'1", and so I walk into the house, and he's 6'4". Are you kidding me? You know, I'm like, all right, here we go. He's huge, and he's also, he was a high school principal. And high school principals know how to play mind tricks on people, right? And so he's staring it down. He's, he's using his, his big build and his big frame, and he's using those stern eyes. And, I mean, he gave me so much grief. His, uh, Jamie's mom, she was kind, she was sweet. Um, her older brother, she, Jamie's the baby of the family, and so she has two older brothers. And the oldest brother, he played basketball for Oklahoma State. And then the other brother was, he's just a, a genius, all right, just a flat-out genius. So here I am. I walk in, and I'm starting to meet everybody. I'm going, oh, good grief. I mean, I'm a, I'm a country boy from... West, uh, top of the Texas panel, are you kidding me? And I'm sitting here going, how am I supposed to measure up? Do you ever have those feelings? Where you really truly say, God, there's just no way. I, I don't have much to offer. I don't have really anything to offer. And the story that you learn and the lessons that we catch from this is that Mary and Joseph were ordinary. In this room right here, there's nobody that could step up and say, God, you can't use me. Because I'm just ordinary. I wish I could get it across. I wish I could pound it into your your head. Just because we hear it and we say, yes, I agree. And then we walk out of here. And the next thing you know, we're going, well, that was really for him. That was really for somebody else. And I'm just saying the message is for us. That God used ordinary people. And he delights to work through them. In your job, in your schools, God delights in using 
ordinary and working through ordinary people. Next, keep going. So here's what we have. Go back to, to Luke and let's read some of the story here. Luke chapter 1. Let's read about Mary's response. I, I love how Mary responds. The angel shows up and the angel begins to speak. And he says in verse 28, and, and he, the angel, came to Mary and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now let's do a little bit of work here because I want to make sure we, we get some teaching here to understand some of the facts that's going on. Um, have you ever heard the words, Hail Mary, full of grace? You ever heard that? Okay. It comes out of this verse right here, and it comes right from here. Now, the Latin Vulgate, uh, when the, the Greek New Testament was translated into Latin, they actually translated this phrase, this passage right here, as Hail Mary, full of grace. Now, the problem is, is that is actually a mistranslation and a misrepresentation of what is going on. Because when you say Hail Mary, full of grace, you're speaking as if Mary is the one who has all the grace to bestow and to give out to others. Are you following this? And here's what the Bible says. Greetings, hello, to you, Mary. The Lord's grace is on you. Do you see the difference? It's not Mary who is full of grace. It's not Mary who is the one who has favor to give to others. It's God having grace on her. This is an incredibly important twist because the Catholic Church talks about how Mary is the one who's able to give grace out. And I want to help you understand how Mary sees this. When she responds and as she interacts, look over in the, the kind of the few passage, a few verses down. In verse 46 begins the song of Mary, the, the Magnificat of, of, of Mary where she begins to proclaim and to sing. And I want to show you how Mary even understands her role. All right, look at this. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Watch, look at this, God, my Savior. She understood she had need of a Savior. Everyone in this room, everyone who's ever lived, except for Jesus Christ, everyone is in need of a Savior. Are you following this? Mary understood that her role was not the one in which to pray to in order to get to the Savior, but she was thankful for God for providing a Savior for her. Now watch. Then she continues on, and this is what she says. For God has looked on the humble estate of His servant. She begins to proclaim. She is amazed. She's humbled because God's grace has been given to her to be a part of his plan. Do you see this? She even responds in the way in which we're talking. It's not that she's giving grace to everyone else, but she is amazed that God would look down on her and give her grace and say, Mary, I want you to be a part. And she's amazed and humbled by the fact that God would work through her. Now here's where it gets pretty exciting. Here's where it gets pretty exciting. She's talking to the angel, and the angel says, Mary, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to become with child. <laughs> She's like, hello. It can't happen. It's not possible. I'm in my betrothal period. There's no way there's this time block where, I'm. yes, I'm engaged, but there's no way, because if we came together at this point in our wedding, in our ceremony, that we would both be stoned. There's no way we came together. And look what she says in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, 
How will this be since I am a virgin? You're speaking crazy talk, angel. Now, just so we're clear, when angels show up in the Bible, there's always fear. There's always this awe, oh no, what's about to happen. I want to help us because I don't know, maybe some of you have angels on top of your tree and I don't want to ruin your Christmas completely. But angels, we have, in our culture, we've begun to depict with a, a feminine quality. We put blonde hair on them and then we have, have these wings and there's, it's just very feminine. But in the Bible, you never see an angel who's feminine. You actually see a, an angel who is strong, who is mighty, and coming as a soldier or a messenger of the Lord, and they come with great power. Now watch this. Do you remember the words, um, the Lord of the heavenly host? It's in songs. It's also in, in scripture, and depending on your translation. It's actually translated, Lord of heaven's army. Angels are the, the army of God. So they're not coming as feminine, soft creatures. They're coming in power, gigantic, muscular. Yeah! And when you see them, it evokes fear because they're so much larger than who you are. Does it make sense? So Mary's now listening to this angel. She's afraid. And he says, don't be afraid. And she's saying, I can't. This can't happen. I'm, I, I've never been with a guy. This is impossible. And then now the angel says something Incredible. He says, you remember your, your old cousin? You know, Elizabeth, the really old cousin, the one who never had kids because she was barren and she couldn't have kids. You remember her? And Mary's like, yeah, I remember her. Well, she's so far beyond her childbearing years that nobody ever thought she could ever be pregnant. But guess what? She's pregnant. And this is of God. So Mary, listen up. You're, you're, you're confused and you're not sure how this is going to happen. You're not sure that even that this is possible, that you could have, be pregnant because the Holy Spirit comes in. You're, you're confused and you're not even sure how it's going to happen. And you're thinking it's impossible. But Mary, God is speaking. And look what it says. Go down, Luke chapter 1. Go down to verse 37. After he tells her about Elizabeth, he says, For nothing will be impossible with who? Help me. Nothing will be impossible with God. Here's your, your last blank on your, on your paper. Don't worry, I'll go back and fill in the, the third line in just a second. Nothing is impossible with God. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, nothing is impossible with God. Say it. Now say it like you believe it. Say it one more time. There you go, it's getting louder, you guys are starting to believe it. Now, here's why I'm saying this. There's some, Christmas season, the holidays, is the greatest time of suicide in the world. There are more suicides during this time period than any other time period. More people lose hope during this period of time. Maybe you've had a death in your family and all of a sudden the the depression and the friction starts happening and you're going, man, there's just, I I can't believe it. there's the, even the pressure saying, I can't buy Christmas presents for my kids. And there's the pressure that begins to mount. What's going to happen next year? I'm going to lose my job. What's I just want to encourage you. You ready? Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. The story that we read over and over again is that nothing's impossible with God. 
Whatever you're facing, maybe it's, 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 it's that troubled pregnancy, or maybe it's not being able to find a job. Maybe it's the cancer that you've been fighting and battling. And I just want to say one more time, nothing is impossible with God. You hear it. You know it. And then we walk away and the pressures of life begin to build and we forget it so quickly. But nothing is impossible with God. Now let me show you one last thing. So Mary hears this incredible news, okay? This is a little crazy, bizarre how, do, how would you respond? How would you respond if you're saying, okay, you're the one and now... I mean, they were looking for the Messiah. Let's be honest. There were 350 Old Testament texts that point to the Messiah coming. They knew the Messiah was coming. They just didn't know how. And they didn't understand what it would look like. And now this angel is tearing, telling Mary, you're the one. And look how she responds. Verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Isn't that an amazing thought? She says, okay, I'm your servant. Whatever God wants, let's do it. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 1. Let me show you Joseph. Joseph, he's been wrestling with what he should do with Mary. Should he stone her? Should he put her away? Okay, I'm going to put her away. I don't want to go through this. This is embarrassing. Verse 20. It says, as Joseph considers these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Do you see the word again? Do not fear. Every time the angel says, don't be afraid. And he says, Mary, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said. And I love Matthew again because Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. And he quotes the Old Testament saying, this is a prophecy fulfillment. This is being fulfilled right here to you, through you. God is using you. God's going to work through you. It's going to be fulfilled. And he says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he said, no way, I'm not doing it. Did he say that? He, he said, okay, and he did it. He took his wife, did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. Now watch, here's your, here's your point that I skipped just a minute ago. God is more concerned with your availability than your ability. It's not your ability, it's not your talents that God is looking for. God is concerned with your ability. Now watch, Mary and Joseph both come to a point. They hear from God. They hear from God. And now they have to make a choice. Will we follow through with what God is telling us or will we not? And they actually have to say yes. And they had to be willing to allow God to change their plans. Now listen to me. This is where we get frustrated. We will sing kumbaya. We'll say, yes, God, I will follow you. And we'll, we'll come and we'll get excited and we'll say, yes, I want God to use me. Yes, do it, do it, do it. And then all of a sudden we lay out our plans and we say, God, here's our plans. This is what we're doing with our life. Please bless it. And then we get frustrated when it doesn't work out the way we want it to work out. Are you following me? And then we say, wait a minute, God, I prayed for that job promotion and you didn't give it to me. You obviously don't like me. Hey, wait, God, I prayed for the healing. Why didn't you? Are, are you following? I prayed for my marriage to be healed. Why didn't you? 
And you just lay it out. And you're saying, God, here's my plans. I thought you were going to show up. And God didn't do it the way he wanted, you wanted, but he did it the way he wanted. Now watch. Where we get frustrated with God is when our plans don't work the way we want our plans to work. And what is amazing about this 15-year-old girl, what is amazing about this young couple, is they were both willing to say, God, you take our plans and you rearrange it. See, they already had the wedding plans figured out. They already had their plans figured out. They already knew this is what our life was going to look like. And they were willing to allow God to step in and to change their plans. Now watch. When we allow God to change our plans, here's what we expect. We expect the road to get smoother. We expect blessings to get sweeter. And the problem is, is this is the... the, the culmination of us taking the American dream and bringing it into the gospel, God never promised to make your life better when you follow him. Now watch. When Joseph and Mary said yes to God, it increased their problems. Joseph now has to go in front of everybody and say, yes, she's pregnant, and I'm still going to take her for my wife. His ridicule just increased in the city. He still had to take care of her. And Mary, oh my goodness, think about Mary. The song says, Mary, did you know? <laughs> There's nobody else on the, in the planet who would know more accurately than Mary. She knew. And when she said yes, she invited pain and sorrow into her life. Not just through the ridicule of the pregnancy. She invited pain and sorrow to watching him grow up all the way to on the cross. She had a sorrow unlike anybody else. It was predicted by Simon when they came and had Jesus circumcised at the temple, right? And Simon, the the priest, says, you're about to have sorrow upon sorrow in your own heart and life because of this baby. Maybe some of you in this room, you, you feel like you're following God. And you're saying, okay, God, here it is. And what you need to hear today is this. God wants your availability. He gives you the talent. He gives you the grace. He gives you everything else. But what God asks of you is your willingness. Will you allow God to change your plans? Will you allow God to interrupt, to make your life a little bit more messy? To say, okay, God, here I am. And if it means that when I say yes to you, God, it invites a little bit more frustration, then okay, here I am. I'm your servant, and I'm willing. For some of us, where we're at today is this. You came to this place, you were just trying to get through Christmas, and you're just kind of here, and you didn't even really want to talk about a Savior. Maybe what God was trying to help you understand is this. If Mary needed a Savior, you need a Savior as well. And today, the greatest gift that has ever been given is that God offers salvation to you. God has offered salvation to us individually. And all we simply have to do, we don't don't earn it by being a church member. We don't earn it by giving millions of dollars to the church. Although if you want to, that's okay. We don't earn it by baptism. We don't earn it by being good. Salvation is a gift given to us. And we have to simply do three things. A, admit. It's the ABCs. Admit that we have sinned and offended a holy, righteous God, trying to live life without Him. B, believe. Believe what? 
just believe in the Christmas spirit? No, believe that Jesus is God's son. That Jesus came to this earth to die on a cross to take your place and mine. And to prove that he could pay for your sins, Jesus rose again. That's what you need to believe. And then see, it's confess. Confess Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, the leader of your life. If you would be willing to give your life to Jesus, we'll, we'll give you perfect timing. God will give you the free gift of salvation. What an incredible gift.